Well, good morning, Arlington Baptist Church. It's an honor to gather with you this morning. Our congregation has enjoyed our times of fellowship with you all, and we've been refreshed by your ministry to us. And we give thanks to God for our partnership in the gospel. I'm especially thankful for how your pastors have ministered to our congregation. Uh, Jed and William have preached God's word uh, over at Bonaire. And I'm grateful for Mike's friendship and his gracious invitation to preach God's word here this morning to you. The British philosopher C.E.M. Jode was once asked, if you could ask one question and be sure of getting the right answer, what would it be? And without a moment's hesitation, he responded, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? That indeed is the question of all questions, and is the question asked in our sermon passage for this morning. So I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 961. And I've titled this message, Counterfactual History and the Christian's Hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. Hear God's word to us. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do? Who are being baptized for the dead. 
If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face a death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess now our deep need for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help us understand what we've just read. So we ask that he would be our instructor in this hour. We ask that he would overcome the blinders of Satan and give us light. Father, I ask that you would be with me as I preach, that you would confirm anything I say here that is true, and please cancel anything I say that is false. I ask for those who are hearing that they would receive the word with eagerness and meekness. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth, which will set us free. And I ask that the Holy Spirit would do as he always does and bring glory to Christ among us in this hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the final shots were fired at the heroic and bloody Battle of Gettysburg, there soon emerged a clear victor. The stars and bars of the Confederate armies were raised high above the battlefield, indicating decisive victory over the tattered stars and stripes of the Union forces. Within weeks, General Robert E. Lee would set his sights on Washington, D.C., tearing through what was left of the Union Army with reckless abandon. And realizing the Union's dire predicament, a dejected Lincoln addressed his weakened nation in his famous Madison Square Garden speech. If, he declared, our brothers in the South are willing to dwell beside us in neighborly goodwill, as an independent but friendly nation. It would not be right to prolong the slaughter on the question of sovereignty alone. And with those fateful words, Abraham Lincoln publicly acknowledged the independence of the Confederate States of America. On September 6, 1863, the Union and Confederate States signed a peace treaty at Harper's Ferry, bringing the bloody conflict officially to an end. The Confederates had won the Civil War. This fictional account is what possibly would have been if Robert E. Lee and the Confederate forces had won the Battle of Gettysburg. But as a matter of historical fact, in case you were starting to worry about me, they did not win the Battle of Gettysburg. They not only lost this decisive battle, but they went on to lose the war to the Union forces. Actually, the scenario I described was imagined by the great statesman and Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill. Churchill was recruited in 1931 to write a book titled, It Is If It Happened Otherwise, 
This book, featuring essays by other famous writers like G.K. Chesterton, was an attempt at what historians now call counterfactual history. Essentially, counterfactual history is an attempt to appreciate actual historical events by imagining what would have happened if they had occurred differently. Imagine how the events of history would be different if Robert E. Lee had won the Battle of Gettysburg. Imagine how the change of one event could alter the course of temporal history. Now, what is more, imagine an event that if it did not happen, would drastically change the course of eternity. This is what the Apostle Paul does in our passage today. The Apostle Paul engages in a little counterfactual history of his own. In order to help the Corinthians better appreciate the bodily and physical resurrection of Christ in the past and its relationship to the believer's own bodily and physical resurrection in the future, Paul imagines how our lives would have been different if Jesus Christ would have never been raised from the dead. This morning, I want us to imagine what our lives would be like if the resurrection had not happened. You see, sometimes thinking about something that didn't happen helps us to appreciate better something that did happen. As we walk through 1 Corinthians 15, 12-34, we will experience the nightmare of what could have been. We will plummet to the depths of despair as we consider what life would be like if Christ was not raised. I can think of no other word to describe this than the word hopeless. But after taking you down to the depths, I want to end by raising you up and allowing you to see the beauty and the truth of the resurrection against the dark backdrop of what could have been. I can think of no other word to describe the truth of the resurrection than hope, glorious hope. But first, let's take a plunge into this dark thought. If Christ is not raised. Verse 12 sets the context for Paul's argument. Look at it. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So evidently some Christians in Corinth denied a future resurrection of the dead. And Paul responds that such a denial rejects Christ's own resurrection in the past and it robs Christianity of its future hope. So if ever there were a perfect example of the maxim, ideas have consequences, it was in Corinth. Paul gives seven hopeless consequences of denying the resurrection. Let's take them one at a time. First, if Christ is not raised, then the gospel is empty. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Paul argues, if a person does not believe in the future resurrection, 
then he must deny altogether the gospel and everything that is proclaimed of Christ. Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection are linked together like a chain. His destiny is our destiny. We are bound up together. Paul wrote in Romans 4 that Christ was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. So to deny the resurrection is to deny a central article of the Christian faith. If Christ is not raised, we lose the gospel altogether. Our preaching and our faith are in vain. What gives preaching its power is that we proclaim a risen Messiah. If the one that we herald rots in the tomb, then we proclaim a powerless message. The good news is no news at all. Jesus Christ is a corpse in the grave. That won't preach. We worship a dead man. That won't preach. He predicted his resurrection, but he remains buried. That won't preach. If Christ has not been raised, then we have nothing to say. Jesus moves from the front page headlines to a mere footnote in the annals of history. You might as well leave now. There's no point in listening to the rest of this sermon. That's consequence number one. The gospel is empty. Second, if Christ is not raised, then the witnesses are liars. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. Paul builds upon his first argument. If Christ is not raised, then not only is our preaching empty, it's misleading. We apostles distort the truth. We misrepresent God by saying he did something that he did not do. We become pseudo-martyrs, false witnesses, fakes, and you best not trust us. Peter, the one who said in Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. John, the one who wrote at the end of his gospel, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's a liar. Don't read him. Matthew, the one who records the hoax the Jews spread that the disciples came and stole away the body of Jesus? He's a liar. The Jews probably told the truth. And me, Paul, the one who just said in verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I'm the biggest liar of them all. If Christ is not raised, then every single one of the apostles gets exposed as a liar. They are not simply mistaken. They are peddling a whopper of a myth. Jesus, too, is a liar. For he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And by extension, we, too, who proclaim a risen Christ, are false witnesses. If Christ is not raised, then Arlington Baptist Church is full of frauds. Our evangelism, our testimonies, this pulpit, it's all 
One big sham. That's consequence number two. The witnesses are liars. Third, if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Jesus came from heaven with an assignment. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Paul said in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then what guarantee is there that his death accomplished anything? A dead Savior is no Savior. If Christ is not raised, then all who trust him for the forgiveness of their sins are still in their sins. Our faith is worthless. If Christ is not raised, then Jesus failed his assignment. The death of Christ is an attempt, but it is not an accomplishment. If Christ did not save us from our sins, then we're all going to hell. Sin's wages must be paid, and death's stinger will spear us all forever. If Christ is not raised, then my friend, you are a lost, hell-doomed sinner, and that is all you can ever be. There remains no sacrifice for sins. Faith in a lifeless corpse buried in the Middle East will redeem no one. Every one of us will face the full, unmediated wrath of God for all eternity. That's consequence number three. We are still in our sins. Fourth, if Christ is not raised, then deceased believers are lost for good. Verse 18. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Do you have family or friends who fell asleep in Christ? They believed in Him, trusted Him as their Savior, submitted to Him as Lord, proclaimed Him as their King, called Him their treasure. Maybe they even led you to faith in Jesus. They lived as pilgrims here on earth, longing for the celestial city. And they fell asleep in death, hoping for the resurrection of their bodies and eternal life with their Lord. But what if Jesus never rose from the dead? If Christ has not been raised, they are lost for good. They will never awake from death and be raised to eternal life. Instead, they have perished. They're no different from those who did not hope in Christ. They kidded themselves in this life and are now rotting, or worse, frying. This is precisely what Paul says has happened, if the Corinthians are correct. Christ's resurrection is essential for our salvation. It is God's amen to Christ's it is finished. 
But if Christ has not been raised, then every Christian who has died remains in death's clutches. That's consequence number four. Deceased believers are lost for good. Fifth, if Christ is not raised, then baptism is meaningless. Paul brackets his exercise in counterfactual history in verses 12 through 19 and 29 through 34. And he puts the actual history in the middle. So jump with me over to verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Now this is a difficult verse. One scholar counted up to 200 different explanations. So today we're going to go over two of those. Most commentators think Paul refers to some form of vicarious baptism. So apparently, some Corinthians had undergone baptism on behalf of fellow believers who had died without being baptized. And your translation may even reflect this view. I'm not persuaded that's what Paul means here. Baptism for the dead in this sense seems almost magical in that a religious rite is performed for someone else. And we know from the whole counsel of God that that's not Paul's view of baptism. Furthermore, this practice would have been unique to the Corinthian church. And I don't think it's like Paul to merely highlight an inconsistency in their practice just to bolster his argument. I think he would have corrected this erroneous practice if that's what they were in fact doing. So I take the view that Paul has in mind normal Christian believers' baptism. Paul says in Romans 6, that Christians are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then baptism becomes a meaningless rite. It falsely represents something that will not happen. The dead will not rise. It, it makes no sense for new Christians who were spiritually dead before their conversion to undergo baptism if faith has no effect on what happens after death. I mean, why would you bring someone under the water, symbolizing their burial with Christ, and then bring them up out of the water, symbolizing their resurrection with Christ, if you don't actually believe that will happen? Christians who die a future resurrection of the body make baptism meaningless. They rob the ritual of all of its riches. So, whichever view you take of the two or the 200, Paul's main point here is clear. Baptism is meaningless. That's consequence number five. Sixth, if Christ is not raised, then suffering is pointless. Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Jesus made it crystal clear that if you take him seriously, you will suffer. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Those were Paul's life verses. And so he says, I die every day. I risk my life every day for the gospel. I'm willing to give up everything for Christ, even to the point of death. Now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, why would Paul live this way? Why risk life and limb? Why face danger every hour? What would he gain in facing human opposition, described here as fighting wild beasts? It would all be pointless. If there is no resurrection, then Paul has wasted his life in believing and suffering for fables. If our hope in future resurrection is groundless, then to forfeit present pleasure and endure persecution for Christ's sake is the height of folly. So I ask you, what's the point of your suffering for Christ? Why take risks to advance the gospel? Why go as a missionary to hard places? Why endure the ridicule of relatives? If there is no resurrection, then we have all played the fool with our lives. It would be better to live it up, as the Epicureans suggested. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We should pursue hedonism and enjoy life's pleasures now. Embrace the party life. Don't waste time pushing this ancient fairy tale. Because if there's no resurrection, then there's no reason to suffer for Christ. That's consequence number six. Suffering is pointless. Seventh, if Christ is not raised, then we are most to be pitied. Jump back over to verse 19. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Paul brings the Corinthian view to its logical conclusion. Christians are the most pitiable people on earth. He does not salute the nobility and sacrifice of Christians, even if their faith is not true. If you're a Christian today, and Christ has not been raised from the dead, and there's no hope of a future resurrection, then you're pathetic. And so am I. There's nothing noble about us. At best, our hope is wishful thinking. At worst, we are completely deluded. Of all people on the planet, we are the most to be pitied. We have hoped in Christ in this life for nothing. We have experienced the greatest and cruelest of all deceptions. Christianity is a colossal fraud that only brings suffering to its followers. Our transformation and spiritual experiences in this life, it's all make-believe. We will have spent our days pursuing a God who will not benefit us beyond the grave. If there is no resurrection, then we can only expect a hopeless end. 
That's the counterfactual history. If Christ has not been raised, then our lives are hopeless. But thanks be to God, that's not the actual history. Look at verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul is done with the fiction. He turns our minds back to the facts. And as a matter of historical fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. His father was satisfied with the work of his son, and he vindicated him by raising him to life. The factual history reports, Christ is risen. And this history changes the course of eternity. Instead of a hopeless end, we have endless hope. And Paul now gives two massive, hope-filled consequences of Christ's resurrection. Let's take them one at a time. First, Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Look again at verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul uses the metaphor of firstfruits to describe how Christ's resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. The firstfruits of any harvest indicate there's more of the crop to come. Christ's resurrection was not the first resurrection in history, but it was the first of its kind. It was the first resurrection of the new creation. And his resurrection is a guarantee of the full harvest. How can Christ's resurrection guarantee ours? Look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God has so ordered history that two men represent everyone else. Adam represents the old creation. Adam sinned and brought death to all who are in him. Christ represents the new creation. Christ conquered sin and death, and he brings life and resurrection to all who are in him. So everything rests on whether you're in Adam or whether you're in Christ. Now, some of you may say, that's not fair. Why do I have to die because of Adam? You know, representation does not compute with our individualistic mindset. Or at least as Americans, we get to choose our representatives, right? <laughs> I didn't choose Adam. But scripture teaches that Adam did represent us. 
and that his representation of us was both fair and accurate. How do we know this? Because when God chooses our representative, he does so infallibly. His choice is an infallible choice, a perfect choice. So Adam represented us infallibly. Not because Adam was infallible, but because God is infallible. And so given God's infallibility, we can never argue that Adam was a poor choice to represent us. Furthermore, if we quarrel with Adam's representation of us, then we must also quarrel with Christ's representation of us. If we reject the death that comes through Adam, then we cannot receive the resurrection that comes through Christ. We must be represented by one of these two men. So, how do I get in Christ? How do I get out of Adam and in Christ? The answer is there in verse 19. We hope in Christ alone. You must be all in with Christ to be in Christ. He must be your only hope for forgiveness of sins and resurrection life. No other Savior will do. History records many men whom people looked to for life and hope. Yet they are all dead. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. But Jesus is alive. Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. But Jesus is alive. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle is dead. But Jesus is alive. Nietzsche is dead. Darwin is dead. Immanuel Kant is dead. But Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. But Jesus is alive. Gandhi is dead. Freud is dead. John Paul II is dead. But Jesus is alive. Only one man in history beat death. Only one man brings life. His name is Jesus. What separates Christianity from all other religions? Christianity is the only major world religion whose founder is still alive. All the rest have died, and they stayed dead. Only Christianity has a resurrection at the very heart of its faith. That's the first hope-filled consequence of Christ's resurrection. It guarantees our resurrection. And second, Christ's resurrection guarantees God's reign over all. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority 
and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Paul views Christ's resurrection in light of God's eternal purposes. Right now, we live in the interim between Christ's first and second coming. Right now, God's enemies are not all subjected to Him. Right now, the enemy of death remains. The end has not yet arrived. We feel this every day, don't we? But because God raised Jesus from the dead, He has set in motion an inevitable chain of events that will be completed. All God's enemies will be destroyed. Death will finally be defeated. And God will reign over all. This is why Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection and God's reign over all. If we are not raised bodily from the grave as Jesus was, then death is never truly defeated. And unless death is destroyed and we are raised, God himself as the sovereign Lord of history is called into question. But Christ's resurrection guarantees our own resurrection at his coming. And then history will reach its goal. The Lord Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every foe. Paul draws from two psalms to ground his argument. Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 8, verse 6. And his point is that the second Adam, the true and better Adam, will do what the first Adam failed to do. He will exercise dominion over all creation. Everything will be put in subjection under Christ's feet. Every rule, every authority, every power, every enemy. No one and nothing will escape the rule of King Jesus. So the cross is not the last battle in the war against the powers of this age. Jesus will come again in power to vanquish every enemy and evil once and for all. And He will hand over the kingdom to His Father. On this final day, the battle will reach its resolution. Just as the Battle of Gettysburg guaranteed victory for the Union and the abolition of slavery, so Christ's resurrection guarantees victory over all His enemies and the abolition of death. And what will happen when history reaches its end? Look at verse 27. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Here we get a glimpse into the mystery of the Trinity. 
How will the Father and the Son relate in eternity future? Paul is not saying that the Son will be subordinate to the Father in terms of his deity. Right? The, the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. So the Son will not be subordinate in that sense. So what does Paul mean? The Son will be subjected to the Father not by means of his divine nature, but by means of his human nature. Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate. He's God in human flesh. One divine person with two natures. And because the Son added to himself a human nature for us and for our salvation, he can be subjected to God. So at the end of history, Christ, the God-man, will be subjected to the Father. And then God will be all in all. For all eternity, God alone will reign unchallenged. There will be no more death, no more sin, no more enemies. God alone will reign supreme. And we will live with him forever in resurrected bodies. And all this is guaranteed because Christ has been raised from the dead. This is our hope. So if you're here this morning and this is not your hope, then I just want to plead with you to hope in Christ alone. And right now, you are hoping in this life only. But this life will end. Death will come. And if you are still in Adam, then you can only expect a hopeless end. You do not want to be among the number defeated by King Jesus. So instead of Jesus conquering you as his enemy, have Jesus conquer your sin. Have him conquer your death. And have him give you endless hope. I plead with you this morning, turn from your sin and hope in Christ alone. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Your faith will not prove to be worthless. Trust him this morning. He is worthy. Church, we need to ask ourselves, how do we live as though the resurrection didn't happen? Paul tells us what happens when we forget our hope. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. These are the only commands in the whole passage. And he tells us, look, these folks who deny the future resurrection, they're going to corrupt you. They're going to ruin you. Don't let them deceive you. You need to snap out of it and stop sinning. Stop living like you have no hope. Fellow believer, do you know why we fall into patterns of sin 
and worldliness. It's because we've forgotten the hope we have in Christ. So we hope in other things that they might satisfy us. But they won't. So rather than defining ourselves by the emptiness of this life and its fleeting pleasures, we must cherish the promise that we will share in Christ's glory. We who look forward to the resurrection of our bodies must not take sin lightly, but do everything we can to put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of you may need to hear loud and clear this morning. Stop sinning! You're living like Jesus is dead. Like you're still dead in your sins. You're not. You have been made alive together with Christ. You've been united with Him in the likeness of His death and certainly will be in the likeness of His resurrection. You have hope for real change in this life. Sin doesn't have the final word in your life. Christ does. You have hope for a resurrected body free from sin. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as he is pure. The logic here is so clear. Despair produces dissipation, but hope produces holiness. If we knew the hope we have in Christ, then we would walk in holiness. We would embrace this hope as we endure hardship, and we would share this hope with those who have none. So let me remind you once more of our hope. Christ has been risen from the dead. And because we have a risen Savior, our gospel is not empty. Our witness is true. Our sins have been paid in full. Our fellow believers will be raised and we will see them again. Our baptism has meaning. Our suffering has purpose. And therefore, of all people, we have the most hope. And when our hope becomes sight, and we bow before our resurrected Lord, He will say to us, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, I ask now that you would do what I cannot do. Just as you raised Jesus from the dead, would you give life to those in this room who are spiritually dead? Let them see Christ for who he is and give them hope. Hope that the darkness does not win. Hope that death is not victorious. Hope that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And would you give hope to these dear believers? Let the joy of this good news swirl around in our hearts. Let excitement for service 
and ministry burst forth from us. May we live in such a way that people ask us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. May this church be filled with those who hope in the resurrection. And Lord, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and raise your people from the dead. Come and defeat all your enemies. Come and put an end to death once for all. We wait for our blessed hope. We wait for you. Amen.